Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 20, Dysfunction and Sibling Rivalry. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on Celtic literacy. And here's a sample of that. Many people simply assume that the Celts couldn't read or write because Julius Caesar said they were illiterate. Well, sort of. I mean, he didn't actually say they were illiterate. And actually, we have archaeological records showing that the Celts didn't just write things down using the Greek alphabet. They also used Phoenician, Etruscan, and Latin letters. In fact, the earliest Celtic inscriptions we found so far were done using the Etruscan alphabet in about the 6th century BC. These inscriptions cropped up around the Tequino and Atta rivers. We've also found inscribed war helmets in Nagao. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to David, Johnny, and John for contributing already. It is 197 AD. Albinus, governor of Britannia and rebel emperor, is dead in the battlefield near Lyon. His wife and sons have been executed by order of the now sole emperor, Septimus Severus. Albinus's head was en route to Rome, while his body, along with the bodies of his family, were dumped unceremoniously into the Rhine. With his defeat and the elimination of all potential heirs, all lands and possessions of Albinus fell to Severus, and now Britannia was rudderless. Many of the Roman soldiers tasked with keeping the peace on the island were dead or across the channel, and many of those who remained were still loyal to Albinus's cause. And of course, there was no governor. In Scotland, the smaller tribes had been entirely absorbed into the two dominant powers in the area, the Caledonians and the Maite. The Maite controlled the region along the wall, while the Caledonians were farther north. Both tribes were still holding grudges regarding the over 100 years of conflict they've had against these Romans, and as luck would have it, Rome's attention was now focused on the continent. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. And of course, the Caledonians struck, skirmishing with the remaining Roman forces all along the north. Meanwhile, supporters of Albinus, along with the generally frustrated Welsh tribes, were also becoming rebellious. Now, something to note here is that the supporters of Albinus were most likely largely within the legions, since there wasn't much of a punitive campaign against the civilians of Britannia when you compare it with what happened on the continent. This leniency, and Severus was not known for his leniency, suggests that Romano-British citizens probably didn't strongly support Albinus. Only the legions did. So the rebellions in Wales probably had little or nothing to do with Albinus, other than the civil war combined with the disaffected legionaries provided them with a chance to strike. So we've got grouchy soldiers and frothing natives. So once again, Britannia was burning. But Rome had two things going for it. First, the rebellions were not well organized. And second... Severus had a plan. A new procurator was appointed. This man was tasked with merciless taxation and rooting out Albinus's supporters. 
and I'm sure that Severus hoped that that would handle most of the issues in the West. So while there isn't an archaeological record of it occurring, it's quite likely that there were widespread confiscations and executions of Albinus's supporters. And actually, in support of this, the next procurator, Marcus Aclatinius Adventus, was a former commander of the Frumentarii, the emperor's secret police. The emperor was clearly tightening his grip and eliminating any supporters of his former heir, Albinus. Land was changing hands, and it was moving into the hands of the emperor. This was the start of a trend that would see the weakening of the upper class and the consolidation of power into the hands of the emperor that would continue essentially through the end of the empire. But the emperor wasn't only interested in consolidating power and removing insurgents. There was also the issue of potential war. After all, rebellions can easily lead to widespread war, and procurators were not generals. Governors were, however. So Severus appointed Varius Lupus, most likely the general who was defeated in the first engagement with Albinus, as governor, and tasked him with stabilizing the region and dealing with the rebellions in the north. But there was a problem with the plan. As I mentioned before, the Caledonians were breaking treaty agreements, which were probably put into place prior to Albinus marching to the continent. But now that Rome was under the command of a new emperor, it seems that the Caledonians felt that the treaties were over and the Caledonians were marching through Maite territory to attack the Roman lands. But the thing here is that the Maite weren't just letting the Caledonians through. They were also beginning to make noises that they would ally with them against Rome. Considering that there were only two remaining tribes, the Caledonians and the Maite, an alliance would be devastating for the already badly bloodied Romano-British. And to make matters worse... Lupus didn't have the manpower to handle an all-out war with Scotland. Requests for reinforcements were denied, as there were other issues elsewhere in the empire that needed those men. And Lupus most likely believed that if the tribes united, they would wash over the wall and no one would be able to stop them. So he made a dramatic change in Roman policy. He paid for peace and obtained the release of a few prisoners. He almost surely had the emperor's approval for this move, incidentally. But this tactic of paying for peace was actually really risky and seen as un-Roman for the time, even though later on it would become routine. But Lupus really didn't have any other options. He couldn't hold off Scotland, and Hadrian's Wall was falling apart. It was built decades ago and had been abandoned myriad times. He needed a chance to rebuild obtain reinforcements, and prepare. Bribery really was the only way for him to obtain that. So he bribed the Maite, which managed to both sever the potential Scottish alliance, as well as prevent the Caledonians from having an easy path south. But that isn't to say that things were easy for Rome. Simply because the Maite were out of the fight did not mean it was all wine and roses, or wine and olives. The Caledonians still found ways to cause significant trouble for the Romans. Now let's pause this for a minute. Ancient sources are silent on the issue of invasion, which makes telling this story a little bit difficult for me. Did the Caledonians manage to invade Britannia? Did the Maite? There seems to have been some abandoned forts around this time, as well as the wall, but was that due to attacks 
or was it due to other issues, such as consolidation of forces or reconstruction? It's really hard to say. For the purposes of this story, though, we're going to assume that the Scots retook some lands in the north, as well as the wall. But let's just keep in mind that we're entering a period in Roman history where things get a little bit foggy in Britannia. Anyway, the Civil War had taken a massive toll upon the Romans, and the task of reasserting power over the Britons was proving to be a significant challenge. After three years of fighting, there was still little progress. The Caledonians were still rowdy, the Welsh were still rowdy, and the Maite were once again threatening to join their neighbors, the Caledonians, in their war against Rome. And to make matters worse, Lupus still lacked the forces to adequately deal with the rebellion. So once again, he had no choice but to bribe the Maite. So in 201 or 202 AD, Lupus was finally released from his duties in Britannia. He'd been there for four or five years, and frankly, he'd managed to accomplish very little. There was a campaign of rebuilding that was taking place, sure, and he managed to prevent a Scottish tribal alliance, but he did that through bribery rather than military valor. And he was a governor. Military valor was his job. He was holding the same position as Suetonius, Agricola, and Plautius. Great things were expected of governors. Or at least you were to die trying to accomplish those great things. And actually, dying while trying to accomplish Roman goals while in Britannia was a popular choice. But Lupus did neither. So I imagine that when he left the island, he left it a little bit crestfallen. However, he could take comfort in the fact that his successors as there were several, were of little note and failed in their tasks as well. And then, in 205, Alfinus Seneco was appointed as governor. And it seems that this governor must have been something of a heavy hitter, though we don't know much about him. The reason I say this is because there are inscriptions from 206 that record the restoration of Hadrian's Wall and an outpost fort. And he, along with Marcus Adventus, were given credit. Wait, Adventus? We've heard that name before. That's the procurator that Severus appointed, who was also the head of the secret police. What on earth was that man doing on a military expedition to take back the wall? He must have played a significant role, I mean, certainly more than a tourist, as his name was inscribed giving him credit. Something exceptional must have occurred to require his presence as well as to earn his inscription. But unfortunately, this is one of the many mysteries of the era. <laughs> Maybe use this financial position to cripple the rebelling Scots with subprime mortgage-backed securities. Weapons like that have been known to bring even powerful nations to their knees. But I suspect that his role involved more swords than ink. I really wish we knew more about this engagement. But really, what we do know is that by 206 the wall was back in Roman hands and being repaired. And also an appeal was sent to the emperor for reinforcements or for an imperial expedition. Now that last part is really significant. Governors generally don't invite the emperor to come and help them out of a jam. After all, defending provinces is what they're supposed to do. That's their job. So asking the emperor to intervene is basically admitting that you're a failure to a man who can kill you and probably wouldn't lose any sleep over doing so. 
And considering how many burdens an emperor has, for a territory to warrant an imperial expedition is also incredibly rare. But of course, by 208 it had been over a decade since the Civil War had ended, and the Britons were still causing trouble. You had the rebellions in the north, you had the rebellions in the west, you had governors who couldn't accomplish anything without resorting to begging for help from the procurator, for God's sakes. Britannia was a mess. Lupus's bribes had only bought a few years of peace with the Maite, and Governor Seneco felt that the situation was completely out of control. And according to Dio, the legions of Britannia weren't helping the situation either. The legions were probably still irritated that a rival emperor controlled the empire. They probably hated Aventus, who rooted out and executed supporters of Albinus. And they probably also hated Senecio, who was a stooge of the rival emperor. What I'm saying is that the legions of Britannia were probably phoning it in. The point is that this wasn't a staged event. It wasn't a propaganda move like other emperors have done in the past. <clears throat> Claudius. <clears throat> Following his victory in Lyon, Severus really didn't have anything to prove. Everyone already knew he was a great general. Now, this was a crisis and Britannia could very easily be lost. So Emperor Severus packed up his wife, his sons Geta and Caracalla, and made for the island with the intent of crushing the tribes of Scotland. And actually, his sons were another reason that the emperor probably decided to march on Britannia. Those boys were getting out of hand, and he needed to keep them busy. Otherwise, they'd simply continue to spend far too much time drinking, gambling, and going to chariot races. And, of course, plotting against each other when they weren't too hungover. Oh, and also plotting against their father's advisor. You see, Severus had long discovered that holding an empire wasn't nearly as fun as winning the empire. So he generally left the administration of the empire to his trusted advisor. But this didn't sit well with the boys at all. Severus tried to calm their anger by marrying Caracalla to the daughter of his advisor, thus making them family. But that actually made it worse. So Caracalla took time off from his debauchery to successfully arrange for the death of the hated advisor and, of course, exile Caracalla's own wife. And spoiler alert, once his father was dead, Caracalla had her strangled to death. See what I mean? These boys needed a distraction or something more permanent. But a distraction would have to do, since the emperor wasn't about to kill his own sons. So a province in rebellion was actually quite convenient for Severus's family troubles. And who knows, maybe military life would reform the boys. Soldiering had been quite good for Severus, and maybe it wasn't bad character that plagued the boys, but rather just a simple lack of proper military discipline. Of course, the boys, one still a teenager and the other only recently turned 20, weren't excited about the opportunity. Why would they want to sober up, leave the women of Rome, and miss out on the games? Oh, and spend time with their dad. Well, their dad was the emperor, so it's not like they had much of a choice. Now, as a side note, and I really don't want to be too much of an apologist for Geta and Caracalla, because they're a bit like Commodus Reborn, I think it's important to look at what their family was like. I mean, once you look at that, it's somewhat understandable that they became the monsters that they were. They come from a family where going on a trip to commit genocide seems like a good way to solve character defects and interpersonal conflicts. I'm just saying, 
they didn't have much of a role model here. So Severus and his dysfunctional little family made their way to Britannia, and of course picked up various continental legions along the way. A lot of legions. And by the time Severus crossed the channel, he must have had a tremendously large force. And the presence of the emperor, along with all these soldiers, I'm sure motivated the British legions to buck up and accept the new world order. And to ensure their compliance, Severus incorporated the British legions into his force. And then they marched north. Well, up in Scotland, the Maite and the Caledonians, who'd been riding high for quite a while, suddenly realized that the party was over. They knew they couldn't handle such an enormous army. No one could. So they sent emissaries to Severus, begging for peace. But the emperor took the time to gather the legions and come to Britannia. Did they really think he'd just turn back around? He came all the way from Rome with his two sons who hated each other. And not just sibling rivalry hate. Oh no, we're talking murderous rage. It's the hate that can only come from self-loathing. After all, the two boys were shockingly similar and equally horrible. Basically what we're talking about here is self-loathing on steroids. We can only hope that from the Alps to the Channel, they decided to give each other the silent treatment. Otherwise, I'm sure that more than once, Severus had to threaten to turn the army around and go home, and then no one would get to go to Britannia. So the emperor had just taken the most irritating road trip in history, and now these Britons were suggesting peace? And if he accepted it, that would mean he got all dressed up and had nowhere to go. No, no, that would not do. So he sent the emissaries packing. But all that time on the road with his sons had worn him down. I'm guessing he had enough of their fighting, because when Severus gathered up his forces and marched north, he left Gaeta in Romano-Britannia to administer justice and handle the affairs of the empire, and brought Caracalla with him. Finally, some peace and quiet. After the trip from Rome with those two, I'm sure war with the Scots sounded like a vacation. Of course, this also afforded Severus the opportunity to keep an eye on Caracalla. There just was something not quite right about the boy, so having him nearby and not at the reins of power was a welcome benefit to splitting the two apart. Of course, Gato wasn't entirely trusted either. He never really had much responsibility as he was the younger son, so Severus couldn't just let the boy go wild with the reins of the empire. So Gato was left with an advisory council, which included his rather formidable mother, to keep an eye on him. So they're marching north, and it doesn't seem like the campaign really began until Severus was beyond the Fourth Clyde Isthmus. This isn't for lack of trying, of course, but rather than standing and fighting as many other British tribes have done in the past when facing Romans, these Britons in the north would simply fade into the countryside. It was an infuriating situation for the emperor, since he was accustomed to much more orderly combat. After all, most of his military engagements had actually been against other Romans, who would politely line up opposite his troops and then fight it out. This guerrilla campaign was not what he was used to at all. So that's probably the reason why Severus didn't encounter any serious engagements until he reached Fife. And even after he reached Fife, there weren't any serious battles and a major thing that points to the fact that there weren't any major battles is that historical accounts seem to focus quite heavily on non-military aspects of the conquest, 
such as Severus's vigorous pursuit of engineering operations, despite his arthritis, such as cutting through difficult terrain and building bridges. I mean, if there was a big battle to speak of, that's what they'd be talking about. They wouldn't be talking about how great he is with a machete. So try as he might, Severus couldn't get the tribes to engage his army in a straightforward battle. And despite the lack of a major battle, his men were consistently in danger anyways. Invariably, they would get scattered in the terrain and then find themselves ambushed by the natives. Men were constantly wounded. But Severus had his own way of doing things, and he would not allow his men to become captured nor slow them down. So when his soldiers could not walk because of their injuries, they were slain by their own unit. It was in this way that Severus managed to lose 50,000 men on his campaign. And all the while, the emperor had to deal with Caracalla. When the boy wasn't complaining about being taken from his hedonistic life in Rome, he was waxing poetic on how he intended to kill Gaeta as soon as he got the chance. Things were getting a little tense on the road, both with his family and with his men. Basically, this entire operation was turning out to be a massive blunder, so eventually Severus had to content himself with forcing the tribes to surrender a wide swath of Caledonian territory. So in 208 or 209 AD, Severus and Caracalla were riding, accompanied by their army, to receive a truce offering from the Caledonians. Severus, weakened by age and illness, was riding on horseback at the head of his force, with his son behind him, also on horseback. As they approached the Caledonians, in full sight of them, Caracalla drew his sword and reined in his horse as if he was going to stab his father in the back. The emperor's men cried out, and Caracalla froze as Severus turned to see his son with his sword drawn. Severus didn't say a word, but instead did his duty and brokered the truce with the Caledonians. Once they were no longer in the presence of the Caledonians, though, Severus summoned his son, placed a sword between them, and essentially dared the boy to kill him. Caracalla didn't move. And with that, the matter was settled. The sad truth of the matter is that Severus damned both the empire and his other son, Geta, by failing to deal with Caracalla. After all, he knew that Caracalla intended to kill Geta as soon as he had the chance. But there you have it. Caracalla survived his attempted regicide. Geta was all but condemned, and peace was established between Rome and the Caledonians. Around this same time, the Welsh Rebellion also came to an end. We don't know a tremendous amount about it, but we know it ended in 209. Britannia was at peace, finally. Though it did not last. In 210, the Maite revolted, to which some of my listeners are saying, they're Scots, they're always revolting. Severus was outraged by this. Once again, he'd have to go and fight these same Britons, and he knew that they would never meet him in an organized battle. So the emperor instead decided to engage in a campaign of genocide. Either the tribes would gather and meet him in battle, or there would be no tribes left. Either way, he would have his peace. Now at this point, the emperor was extremely ill, so the command was actually given to Caracalla. But when you want to commit widespread genocide... Who better to accomplish that than your sociopathic, homicidal son? But the problem is that Caracalla wasn't really interested in war. He definitely wasn't interested in the Caledonians or the Maite. He just wanted power. So the war was only interesting to him so long as it afforded him opportunities to try and gain control of the army. 
and he worked very hard to get the soldiers to see him as the sole leader. All the while, he spread slanderous attacks about his brother and basically acted like a rabbit. In fact, even though his father was terribly ill and Caracalla was essentially in charge of the war, that wasn't enough for him. He tried to get the physicians who were charged with healing the emperor to instead bring about his death. The physicians, of course, refused. All the while, Caracalla was also intent on killing every man, woman, and child of the Maite. This campaign of genocide was so brutal that it enraged the Caledonians and once more they marched to war. Upon hearing that the Caledonians had broken their truce, Emperor Severus himself decided that he would bring about an end to the war. He roused himself from his sickbed and began to make preparations. But on February 4th to 11, he died in Aboricum, modern-day York. With his dying breath, he urged Caracalla and Gaeta to have unity amongst themselves, enrich the troops, and scorn everyone else. Unfortunately, the boys seemed to have missed the first part and only paid attention to the last bits. So the emperor was dead. And of course, it was rumored that the death was aided by Caracalla. And Caracalla immediately seized control and began to murder everyone allied with Gaeta, suspected of being allied with Gaeta, or merely not 100% in favor of everything Caracalla did. For example, he even killed the physicians who refused to kill their emperor. No one was safe. Not even if you were beloved by Severus. After all, Caracalla had already shown that he was willing to bring down even his father's most trusted advisor. And meanwhile, he went to work trying to bribe the army's commanders, trying to get them to turn on Gaeta. But the army loved Severus and intended to carry out their former emperor's wishes, despite Caracalla's threats and bribes. Severus made it clear they wanted both his sons to hold the title of emperor. And regardless of how insane that might be, and it's pretty insane if you ask me, the army was going to see it done. Now, upon realizing that the army wasn't going to back him against Gaeta, suddenly the war had no use to Caracalla, so he hastily signed a treaty with the tribes of Scotland and returned to Aboricum, where Gaeta and his mother waited. Their mother once again tried to reconcile the boys, as did their advisors, and after much argument, Caracalla decided to pretend to live in peace with Gaeta. The forts were evacuated, and once again Rome abandoned Scotland. Now before I let you go, there's one last thing that should be mentioned. At some point, Britannia was divided in two. Britannia Inferior, with Aboricum as its capital, and Britannia Superior, with Londinium as its capital. For those of you from York or the surrounding areas who are rankled by the title Inferior, take solace in the fact that the title simply denotes that it is farther from Rome, and Rome is considered to be at the center of the world. So the inferior superior isn't a judgment of the quality of the lands or its citizens. The thing about it, though, is that we aren't sure exactly when it happened. Some believe that it happened in 197, under the command of Severus. Others believe that Caracalla was responsible for the split of the province. There isn't a clear answer. But regardless of the timing, the decision to split the province wasn't an irrational one. Which actually makes me think that maybe it wasn't Caracalla. See, the thing was is that Britannia was a gigantic territory and possessed tremendous amounts of wealth. To let that sit in the hands of a single governor was begging for inefficiency at best, or outright rebellion, as had already been the case, at worst. 
So from now on, there would be a north and south to Roman Britannia, and the basic military and civil life that would shape Britannia for the remainder of the 3rd century had been put in place. All right, we're going to stop right there. Next week, we're going to be talking about more British history. I don't think we're going to cover too much about Gaeta and Caracalla, even though it's a very fun story. It's not a British story. But suffice it to say that those two really don't like each other. And uh, they co-hold the reins of power, but they were pretty much disinterested in running government, and they were more interested in destroying their political opponent, which sounds very familiar to a lot of political situations we've got going on right now. Um, so that's not going to go well for Rome, but we already know we're on a downward swing at this point. But next week, we'll talk more about what's going on in Britannia. Uh, this is episode number 20 actually and we're going to have episode 25 here in well five more episodes and I was thinking that maybe we could do something fun for episode 25 so if you have any questions that you'd like to submit to me I will answer them on air so go ahead and email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and let me know what questions you have you can also join in the conversation on Facebook. It's at facebook.com slash British History, or you can head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And if you don't want to go to the website or Facebook or email me directly, uh, you can just send me positive thoughts or negative thoughts or whatever kind of thoughts. Anyways, thanks for listening. <laughs>